Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of the Healthcare Hub podcast. My name is Tyler, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Abhinav. How are you doing today, Abhinav? I'm doing great. Really excited to get this one started today. Fantastic. Yeah, we've got some interesting topics going on today. Abhinav is going to kick it off kick us off with a little intro to PillCheck, a genetic test that looks at side effects of medications. And then we have a great conversation with Kelty Gale, who is a consultant at Santa's Health. So overall, a lot of great content in this week's episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. One company that I came across that I found really interesting is PillCheck. As we know, there are variations in how people respond to different medications. This might have been something we experienced personally with the different doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. For example, I personally didn't have any symptoms the day after my vaccine doses, but I know other people who were really knocked out for a day or two after their dose one or their booster. For other medications, they're taken more frequently. Negative side effects can be prolonged with much more variation. These differences are related to pharmacogenomics, which is the study of how your body responds to medications based on your genetic makeup. PillCheck, previously named GeneUN, provides DNA testing that helps identify the right medication at the right dose from a broad spectrum of drugs. According to their website, the most common challenge with prescription drugs is unwelcome side effects. The results from PillCheck are meant to provide physicians with more information to better inform drug prescriptions. And the process is quite simple. You order a kit online or pick one up at select shoppers drug marts. You then take a cheek swab and submit your sample via mail. Then in about two or three weeks, you receive your confidential results online, which you can then share with your doctor. PillCheck uses genetic markers optimized for enhanced sensitivity for accurate results in ethically diverse populations, regardless of gender. The company tests for genetic variations in liver enzymes like SIPs and other enzymes affecting drug metabolism, transport, or response. Right now, the service costs about 500 bucks, which includes the testing kit and shipping costs, a personalized report, a pharmacist review, and free updates based on new medication information. The company noted that 78% of prescriptions were changed with the results from PillCheck test results, which was surprising to me. They also noted that such a test could partially be covered through insurance plans, and it definitely seems that the company is marketing in the direction of plan sponsors and insurance carriers. The idea being that plan sponsors can help avoid the cost of covering ineffective prescriptions and lost productivity until a right treatment is found. This is definitely an interesting take on genetic testing that I haven't seen before, and I'm curious to see how successful the company is in convincing both patients and plan sponsors of the benefits of their results. Not to mention the requirement that physicians actually know how to use the results when writing their prescriptions. Overall, I thought this was definitely an innovative company. I know they're working closely with the Mars Discovery District in Toronto, and I'm curious to see where the company goes in the future as they further refine their product and collect more evidence-based information on the benefits of their reports in clinical settings. Tyler, do you have any thoughts on our company today, PillCheck? Yeah, I mean, these direct-to-consumer genetic tests are a very interesting field, given that as the technology in genetic testing becomes more advanced and is able to give us more insights from their tests, they're going to become much more of a supplementary tool for the healthcare setting and can even approach 
the genetic testing that's being done in hospitals or in actual uh, healthcare settings by healthcare professionals. When I worked in this space in the past, it was uh, a, a tool that was able to be used by nutritionists and doctors and, and fitness trainers. So to see that this is a tool that can be used by pharmacists and doctors to help with prescriptions, I think is really cool. And it's just an interesting place that'll be interesting to follow along with as the technology develops and we're able to get more detailed insights about these polygenic complicated traits that uh, that require a lot more information. So uh, overall, it's going to be interesting to see uh, where the company goes, just like you said, Abhinav. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's a interesting space. Uh, it'll be definitely interesting in seeing how they market their product in Canada compared to somewhere like the States. So definitely an interesting one. And that brings us to the end of the segment. Kelty Gale completed her undergraduate studies at Queen's University in Global Development Studies, followed by a master's at Queen's in Human Geography. Most of her work focuses on conducting primary research to support strategic decision-making for clients. Kelty has had various roles at academic universities as a teaching assistant, and currently she supports the practice area lead for Santa's strategy, policy, and management consulting practice. She supports client developing successful and impactful strategies for growing their organization and enabling better health for Canadians. Welcome to the Healthcare Hub podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. Sweet. All right. Well, Kelty, uh, you have a very exciting background, so we're excited to jump into it, but we're going to start off right back at your initial education. So we can see that your undergraduate education uh, started off in life science with a minor in music studies. So going into university, did you have any interesting uh, career uh, aspirations heading in or, or what were your goals heading into university while taking those studies? I was always really into science. And so that was where I was headed. Um, I thought potentially medicine, but really like uh, my first year was biology, chemistry, physics, calculus. Um, and then I was also a musician and I didn't want to give that up. Um, I played the viola and, and it helped uh, keep me balanced, I would say, and had to have something you, to use my brain totally differently. Um, and so I did that as well. And quite quickly, uh, I wasn't certain I was on the right path. Um, the memorization and the details and the minutia that you get into in LifeSci uh, didn't necessarily work for how I like to think. Um, but I stuck with it and I did a couple of years and I was in my third year and I was sitting in an epidemiology class and thinking, oh my God, why isn't it all like this? And then, you know, my next course, I'm in pathophysiology and it's, here's the disease here's the treatment next. And I'm thinking, why did those people get sick? And what, what, how did they get into the system? And does everybody get that treatment? I was like, I'm totally in the wrong program. I need something where I could think at a higher level, bigger picture system stuff. Um, and I ended up, I had taken an elective in global development studies. So it's far enough into LifeSide that I finished it, but I added on global development, kept the music to keep my brain balanced. Um, and ended up with this very odd undergrad, um, but that let me learn about health from so many different perspectives and to see uh, different levels of thinking. There were people who loved like a single protein, people who loved a person. What is going on in that person? I, was like, I want the whole system. I want all the people. 
That's really great. You had the chance to take a diversity of courses in your undergrad. And I think that's a lot of what undergrad's about, kind of discovering who you are and what your true interests are. And, and that did lead to your uh, master's in human geography. So could you tell us a little bit more about your master's research? Absolutely. Um, it was, I was in geography, but geography, I think, is a misunderstood field. And I would have put myself in that category probably before I was in it. Um, and the, anything that has to do with place and space and how people live in those places and spaces um, is really what human geography is about. So I was studying social isolation in seniors and its impact on their health um, and had a amazing um, data set that was from, from the Canadian Institute for Health Information from CAIHI that is based on census data um, to look at factors of isolation. So I was doing all this quantitative piece to it. And then I also spent a lot of time at the Kingston Seniors Association, um, getting to know what was actually going on the ground on the ground and talking to people and talking to an organization who was really helping to try and fight isolation in um, that population. So I got to do I got to do both that quantitative and qualitative piece to my master's and on a topic that only became more and more important um, over the last 10 years or so um, since I was doing that work. And, and especially during the pandemic, I think we've seen how important it is um, that, that we combat isolation and that of the impact that that has on people's health. Very cool. No, that's uh, an interesting area to study. And it's interesting to see how a, a topic like you said, geography, mixes in with healthcare and how that all blends together. So uh, then coming out of school, you joined the Ontario Brain Institute, which for uh, listeners that don't know, is a provincially funded not-for-profit organization that supports research and commercialization in the neurotechnology space in Ontario. So what was the link between that organization and your graduate studies that led you to make that jump? So uh, the big thing is how um, the Ontario Brain Institute, OBI, thinks about research. And so what I was doing was working on their operations team, supporting um, industry relations and the knowledge translation team. But it's it was really about collaborative, um, big scale research. So they've thought about this very differently. And basically, when it was set up, they said to researchers across Ontario, um, if you want to be funded, you have to work with everyone else doing the same kind of work that you are. Um, and so they set up these big networks. And I think that is what really attracted me to that is this model um, of really collaborative research. And in my graduate studies, and I would say actually throughout my whole academic career, there was an underlying tension around competition. And so people would say they're working together and they would work together and they would do it and they co-write papers and, and work in labs together. But there was always this underlying competition. And I felt like the model at OBI was getting rid of that um, in a way that said, okay, we're not actually not going to give you the money unless you work together and unless you work together in a different way and unless you share your data and unless you involve patients and unless you actually do no up knowledge translation out to the community. Um, and it was just a really different way of incentivizing research um, and incentivizing researchers to do something different and interesting. So that, that really appealed to me coming out of an environment um, where the level of competition had always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I think that's great. Uh, I, especially in research, it's true. Uh, 
promoting that collaborative approach is so important. Sometimes researchers and institutions can get so caught up in uh, driving the most publications and most impactful work. And sometimes you can have the most impact when you work together. And uh, that's great that this uh, institute was really highlighting that. Um, one of the big things that was really interesting is how they brought patients in as well. It's not just researchers. And patients get to set research priorities. Um, they are a huge part of what happens with the work, how the work is done, um, and what it actually looks like all through the process. And that, that is one of the things that has really stayed with me is that, that very different way of thinking, um, about patients, not as research subjects, but as people who are really part of the team. Yeah, that actually uh, leads perfectly into what my next question was. Uh, was and it was about that idea where in this role uh, you planned a sold out public talk for 500 people and also planned a workshop day for 50 patient advocates bringing in the patient voice into planning and execution of neuroscience research. Uh, how, how valuable did you find this engagement with the patients and is this something that you think uh, is a trend that is continuing now uh, and how can we support this type of process and bringing in patient voice in research? Absolutely. I think it's something that's continuing and is only more and more and more important. Um, the, the divide between patients and the public and what's going on in our healthcare system and in our research systems um, sometimes makes it so that healthcare and research is not really designed for the people it's truly meant to serve. Our healthcare system should be um, designed for, driven by and serving patients. Fundamentally, um, that is the entire purpose of our healthcare system. And if we lose that by not having those voices around the table and not having that perspective really present in everything we do, then we risk going off track and having a healthcare system that actually doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting concept. And like, I, I've worked in a lot of the healthcare innovation area over the past couple of years. And I feel like a big focus is always like, will the doctors buy this? Will hospitals take this on? Or will the scientists like this? And uh, you don't really get the patient perspective a lot, even when you're doing like uh, market research uh, and talking to your potential customers, the patients don't get looped in there a lot. So it's uh, cool to see that you guys did a lot of that. And uh, so one thing about OBI uh, and, and your role there was that it seems to be your first taste of on-the-job government relations responsibilities. So how does fostering those relationships compare with compare in practice to what you learned in school with working with the government? I would say that my understanding of how the government worked was at a very, very high level when I was in school. It was very much about... Um, the actual policies they put out and, you know, the impact of that legislation and impact of certain policies, less about how they actually got made and how that happened and what those relationships looked like um, to make those things happen. At, at OBI, it's because it's a government funded agency, it's a really collaborative relationship and, and, you know, working on the, our reporting went to the government, but it was so much more than that. We would meet with them. They would tell us about things coming up that they were thinking about. We would talk about what we were doing, make sure that it all actually made sense together. Even though it's an independent agency, it was really important that we could learn from and, and communicate openly with each other. 
I, I think in school, so much of what we learn is makes it seem very cut and dry. And really government policymaking is very messy. And there's a lot of voices involved and there's a lot of perspectives involved and lots of things that can make it go a certain way that don't necessarily translate when you're actually looking at the final product and thinking about where that came from, you lose some of that nuance that is that is inherent in that messy process. That's awesome that you had this uh, great experience so early on into your career and really did lead into your next roles at uh, Santis Health, where you began as a consultant and now working as a director. So for people who may be less aware of Santis Health, can you explain a little bit on the background of Santis as a consulting firm and the services it offers for the Canadian healthcare system? Absolutely. Um, the company just turned 10. We just had our 10th anniversary about a month ago. Um, and 10 years ago, when they were, when the founders were thinking about starting a consulting company, what they were really looking at was an environment where there were companies offering the services um, that we offer, but not specifically for healthcare. So there's lots of communications companies, there are management consulting companies, government relations companies, but there was nobody bringing all of that together for the healthcare sector and with that really specific health focus. And, and the thinking in the, the beginning and still today um, is that there is something different about the health care sector. So that there, there is a specialized knowledge and there is um, a, a way of thinking and a base, base understanding of how this works that brings together government, strategy, health, communications in a different way than you might if you were working on education in the morning and healthcare in the afternoon and mining in the environment tomorrow. Um, and so that specialized healthcare focus was really um, the, the principle around the founding of the company. And, and that is still true today, that it, all the work we do is in the health and life sciences. Um, and now it cuts across um, the more traditional government relations and advocacy kind of work, uh, communications work that, that um, spans a growing array of different types of communications work um, from the sort of proactive thinking about getting your message out to very reactive, like crisis communications kind of work. Um, and then um, our strategy and policy team who do a lot of strategic planning, policy development, um, the more long-term thinking often, um, but also thinking about um, some of the more, the more uh, entrenched problems in our health system and how we can help her, um, get over those barriers. Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting area of focus that Santos takes on uh, in their consulting practice. So we've talked to uh, people from a variety of consulting practices, especially like the big ones, the the big five and all those sorts of guys and learned about how they got into those roles. How did you get into a role into a more niche uh, consulting firm? Where, where'd you find that? How do you get interested in consulting? So it's a very different environment when you're talking about the small companies. Um, Santos is now about 30 people, but when I joined, they were going from seven to eight. So it was, it was still, a uh, that was six years ago. So it was still a small company who was, um, and, and, you know, figuring out what they were doing. And, and I honestly didn't know 
my job existed before I started actually looking at this job and thinking, well, that might be cool. And that might fit with what I like doing and how I think and what works for me. Um, so I, it was that I actually met somebody who was at the company and started having conversations with them and, and one thing led to another. Um, but really it's the entire world of consulting was a bit foreign to me beyond just those, those huge management consulting companies that, that, you know, do their on-campus recruiting and, and you see them and it's all the commerce folks who are so into that and that it sort of stops there. Um, but this is this specialized healthcare focus, I think puts a really different lens on it. And being a small company, um, means that we work quite differently from, from some of those big companies and especially that we're looking for something a little bit different. Yeah, it definitely sounds like the Santis has grown, uh, as you mentioned from 70 now to more than 30 people. So that's really great to hear. And just in terms of your clients, does Santis mostly deal with public sector clients and, or are there some, private sector firms you work with? It's a, um, actually a big split between public and private. Um, we do, uh, we have a life science team. And so a lot of the work they do is with the private sector, with, with the biopharma sector, digital health. Um, so so a, a big private sector focus, but then also spanning the public sector across um, different, pro- different types of providers. So hospitals and in the community, um, the mental health space, long-term care, primary care, um, and then also the sort of uh, planning and regulatory side of the healthcare system. So um, people like the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies and Health or Ontario Health or some of those big, um, big planning entities um, who we've had the opportunity to work with on the public side as well. Yeah, and one, one of the things we've uh, learned a lot about uh, throughout this podcast is the different lifestyles of public versus private companies. And I'm sure from the consultant's perspective, you're able to get a taste of that from working with those two sides of the spectrum. What would you say is the, uh, maybe to you, the most prominent, most impactful difference between working with a public sector client and a private sector client? Oh, that's a good question. Honestly, I would say I see way more similarities. And, And that is... Uh, been really interesting to me and not necessarily what I expected that I actually think though, especially that I actually think the size of the organization makes a bigger difference than the type of organization, because I think big pharma companies and a huge hospital or a, you know, the ministry, they actually work quite similarly because of those sort of business best practices that are required to run an enormous enterprise. And where when you get down to smaller organizations, um, there's a lot more variety and they work in a lot of different ways because I think they are much more tailored to their really specific context. Um, where when you're running, when you've got thousands and thousands of employees, um, there really are certain best practice ways of doing things. Um, and so I really have been kind of shocked, I would say, actually, over the last six years of the similarities um, between some of the public and the private uh, organizations. I think people would be surprised to know that uh, they're actually not as different as they think they are. That's interesting. Uh, uh, Definitely in our conversations, we have definitely highlighted those differences, but it's also great to hear about some similarities in how they operate. And uh, that's also great for someone who's looking to work in 
public sector and also move and transition to the private sector. Because it is possible, especially in Canada, uh, to have roles in both spaces and kind of hop uh, back and forth uh, within your career. And I think uh, there's definitely skill sets you can bring coming from the public sector or vice versa. So speaking on skills, uh, it seems like research is still a large component of your work in providing recommendations. Do you often find yourself falling back on your skill sets you developed during your master's or undergraduate studies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a big part, if I had to you know, make it as simple as possible of what I do today is um, help organizations make better decisions. So they're in a situation where they're trying to set a path forward or make a decision about something or make a decision about what policy they want to put forward. And what we're doing is collecting and collating and analyzing information Sorry, I just lost my internet for a sec. Where do you want me to? I'm not sure when I cut out. Yeah, you were good. You were good right up until the last second there. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, maybe I'll start. But yeah, that sounds like a fantastic answer to, to finish that off. Um, okay, I'll go, can I go back just like one? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, yeah, so you can uh, You can act as though we you just asked the question again. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So when we're helping people make a decision, what we're really trying to do is make sure they've got all of the best insights that they need to be able to do that. That means that we are using the sort of qualitative research skills of going out and talking to people and talking to their partners and their funders and the leaders in the system of what are you doing? What are you seeing going on here? What does this environment look like? And then also the quantitative of looking at the organization itself um, and their, their metrics and their data, um, but also demographics and environmental trends and, and the bigger picture for them beyond the walls of their organization. Um, and all of that really does rely on those same research skills that quite frankly, I thought I maybe was leaving behind um, when I left school, um, but that that come in so handy every day, um, just in a really different, a really different context and with a different outcome. We're not trying to write an academic paper. We're trying to give people the most pertinent, the most important information so that they can do something with it. Yeah, very cool. And a, uh, another big part of your role is uh, project management. So that's uh, a skill set that's going to be involved in a lot of consulting practices and large organizations of any sort. So did you do any sort of preparation or, or courses or anything to develop those skills in advance of this kind of role? Or was that more of an on-the-job developed skill set sort of thing? I was very lucky that they were willing to let me develop it on the job and that I got to do this um, as I went. I will say, I think that there are lots of experiences that people, especially in their undergrad and, and graduate school have that they don't see as project management, but that really are. Um, lots of undergrad students are involved in things like event planning. That is like a one-on-one on how to manage a project um, because there are so many moving pieces. You have to see the big picture. You have to see the details. Like that is, that is the um, little microcosm of what project management can look like. Um, but so is doing a master's. And that's you are managing a project start to finish 
um, over usually a year or two years. So a relatively long timeline um, and, and getting those skills um, kind of as you go can really translate into um, project management. Now, I will say, I think the some of the courses are really helpful. Um, if I had done them, I feel like I may have had a little bit less of a steep learning curve at times as I wrapped my head around some of the best ways to do things rather than just the uh, possible acceptable way to do things. On, uh, yes, project management, are there any specific tools or software you uh, think are, have been beneficial for you? I know there's a lot of things coming out there now. Honestly, for us, it's so project dependent. So we have some where it's a very small project and you're working with a couple people on the team and, and re just really closely with the client, where other projects, we're starting as a company to get into some bigger projects now. And so we're starting to move to some of those more formalized processes. Um, still very much tools that we have developed ourselves, not the big software kind of, kind of systems yet. Um, but who knows, as the projects get bigger and bigger, we may end up going that way. Yeah, no, that's uh, overall a skill set that you, you just, most people develop while actually managing a project. The, I've taken a few of those courses as well, and they give you some, some interesting tools. But yeah, that experience, I feel, really gives you the sense of how to manage a project. And uh, going into another major area of consulting, engaging stakeholders overall, whether uh, clients or other stakeholders in a, in a project is a very major part of consulting. So uh, when it comes to stakeholder engagement with government clients compared to private sectoring clients, are the goals and KPIs of each group a little bit different? Or is it the same sort of thing with private versus public where everyone's got the same or, or you notice a lot more similarities than differences in that sense? I think it depends more on um, the type of project and what they're really looking for. If, if a company is looking to develop an organization, public or private, is looking to develop a strategy, then really what they're looking for um, from stakeholder engagement is the views of system leaders um, who are seeing where the system is going and really looking ahead. And then also often some objective and in our case, typically anonymous um, to the client input on um, how the organization is doing and what people's views are of how that organization is actually performing. What kind of partner are they? Um, um, what, what are their strengths? Where, where could, can they excel? Um, and, where if you're looking more at advocacy um, and this are more traditional government relations kind of activity, um, that's a very different kind of stakeholder engagement. Both of them involve relationship building. Both of them involve understanding your audience and really thinking about who you're talking to and what you need from them and what you are offering them. Um, almost more importantly, what are you bringing to the table? Um, but, but it's a very different kind of messaging if you're messaging out versus asking for people, pe for people's input, um, on what you're doing. On that note, uh, of stakeholder engagement, definitely that, um, when you are doing these interviews, you really have to ask the right questions to pull insights and draw information, uh, out. What strategies would you say you use to really have in-depth conversations in these types of interviews? I think there are two key things. Um, one of them is doing your homework. 
Um, you've got to know what you're coming into, know where that person is likely coming from, but also what are the key pieces of information you're looking for? Why are you asking those questions? Um, understanding really what the, if you had to narrow it down to one thing you needed from this interview, what would it be? Um, really helps to drive towards that goal um, of really knowing where you're going um, and, and what you need out of that conversation. The other thing I would say is not being too rigid and real, which is part of why that that notion of understanding what is it you're actually trying to get to matters because the conversation may go to a really interesting place that will still get you there but is not the questions you planned on asking and that flexibility um, I think can lead to much better conversations and in part being able to focus only in the health sector helps with that because um, there are pieces that come up in an interview that may not have been what you would expect based on the, the person you're talking to or the client that you're talking about. Um, but that um, if you have that background knowledge of the sector as a whole, you can keep that conversation going in a way that really gets you to where you need to be. Yeah, especially, you know, as running a podcast, we've had to build on those skills a little bit ourselves, but obviously we're interested in roles like like you're pursuing as well with that in-person research, uh, speaking with potential clients and customers and, and patients and all those sorts of things uh, in a variety of roles potentially in the future. So for anyone who's going into a role that's going to involve uh, interviews or, or speaking with those kinds of stakeholders, what would you say are some key skills that you developed to be able to, to nicely run an interview or just from like a soft skill standpoint, how would you say you developed that skill set? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I was lucky enough to get to do this along the way towards where I am now. So um, it's been, you know, a, a journey to get to the point of being able to do this um, pretty smoothly. The, and I, I think the, one of the big things is learning to listen to people differently. And it that when you're doing the interview, your job is primarily to listen, even though you're the one asking the questions. If you let the person um, who you are interviewing drive that conversation, you're, you can guide it, um, but you often get more honest, thoughtful, fulsome feedback um, when you do that. Um, I think one of the other things that is really interesting about doing a lot of interviews um, is recognizing that they are all going to be very different and that people may say things extremely differently and mean the same thing. People may also say the same thing and mean something incredibly different. And recognizing that you that the your job typically after the interview, um, is to put the context around it based on the whole conversation and not just pick out that quote that, that, and pull it out of context, um, to make sure that you are accurately representing what people have said and the intention behind it rather than just the words. Um, so there's a piece of it that's the actual interview and a piece of it that is learning how to do that analysis and being really thoughtful um, about what that looks like. And that takes, that takes a lot of time. Um, 
and energy and effort and attention. And, um, but it is so worth it in the products that it produces at the end. Yeah, I think that's great advice for anyone listening, uh, especially early on in their career. Uh, myself, when I take notes on stakeholder interviews, you really also want to capture the interviewee's sentiments. So they said this, but they they were their tone was a little bit upset about this subject. So capturing those pieces does help later on in that more of that analysis piece, uh, as you mentioned. So I did want to jump a little bit back on Santis as a consulting firm. So. Uh, some of the other consulting firms do have a lot of resources from a global healthcare perspective. How does Santis work to stay up to date on changes in the industry? And is there really an advantage uh, that they can put forth as a Canadian-focused practice? That's a great question because it is definitely something we think about. Currently, all of our work is in Canada. Um, we started out with a very heavy focus on Ontario, and it is now expanding. Um, but being able to really dive deep into that context has been actually part of the selling proposition. So while it's very important, obviously, to stay up to date on the big macro trends, um, when you are only focused on that sort of global perspective or that bigger picture perspective, you lose some of the nuance of what's going on um, at the ground level. So, for instance, in Ontario right now, coming up to an election in um, this spring is huge um, for the healthcare system. It totally affects the way people are talking about um, healthcare right now. Um, and if you are looking at a global perspective, you would think that coming out of the pandemic is the most important thing happening right now. And I would argue that those are actually sort of equally influencing how people are talking about healthcare in Ontario right now. Obviously, the pandemic is enormous and um, it still has a massive impact and we are still not even um, through seeing what that impact is going to be. But as we head up, start heading towards an election, you start hearing things like uh, advertising on the radio and on TV that has a, that is about healthcare, which is not something we typically hear any other time of our electoral cycle. Um, so that some of those, some of those nuances in the really local environment, um, I think are actually part of the selling proposition that we, we get that. Um, I think from personally, from my perspective, I feel very lucky that we, that I have uh, or that I now, the company has grown to the point that we now have a bigger team. And so collectively, we're all staying on top of this and staying on top of what's going on in the, the, the big picture, um, kind of global perspective. And we, we share a ton of resources um, of you know, news articles, academic articles, things we're reading, um, things we think will make a difference to a client, even if it's not a client you that I personally am working on. If I see something that I think will be helpful to one of my colleagues, we have that kind of environment. Um, so it's a lot more organic than, than some of the big companies who do have this infrastructure to help keep people up to date. Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting take on, on how you're impacted by all these external stimuli in the environment. Uh, but you brought up one being the pandemic. Now, obviously, we've talked to all sorts of people about how their, uh, how their job changed the pandemic, a lot more remote work, a lot more new tools for project management and communication and all that stuff. But from a content perspective of your job, like the types of projects you're working on, the types of stakeholders you're working with, has that at all changed during the pandemic? 
It has. Um, there is much more focus on, um, you know, there, there, there are definitely some new companies and new issues that we're working on, um, particularly around things like supply chains or, um, you know, companies doing mobile vac- vaccination, mobile testing, um, that sort of company that we wouldn't even have seen two years ago or that nobody would have placed the same emphasis on two years ago. And um, the other, I think, big change from a content perspective is that people are thinking differently about uncertainty and risk. And well before, um, people would think about risk and it was definitely something that was important, especially to boards of directors and executive teams. And at that level um, of thinking about and measuring and preparing for risk, this pandemic has been totally different from what anyone expected and what people were prepared for, even if it had been identified as a risk. And so there's a new recognition that even in the face of uncertainty, we have to move ahead and plan and you can't put that on the back burner forever, even if you don't have all the answers, because we are unlikely to have all the answers. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday who was the head of the pandemic preparedness uh, committee for his organization um, years ago, in a, leading up to the pandemic. And they had plans in place. They were ready. They developed this. Pandemic hits. They put their plans in place. And then it gets to a month and they've never planned for anything that lasted more, more than a month. And that was, that was because that was based on all the research for their particular sector and what they were dealing with. That's what they, you know, were planning for. And here we are at year two, at the end of year two. That's uh, really interesting too, how the pandemic has reshaped how leaders think about their assessment of risk in different projects and how you really bring that lens into new consulting engagements. So uh, a little bit as we close off, maybe on our discussion here of Santis Health, I did want to highlight one case study that Santis worked on uh, for some more discussion here. Uh, so Reconnect Community Health Services uh, and the former St. Clair West Services for Seniors pursued a groundbreaking merger that brought together two parts of the healthcare system that are traditionally operated in silos, that being mental health and addictions and community support services. So uh, Santos working with the team and after some significant stakeholder engagement and business case development, voting members were able to pass a motion that really supported this merger further. The merger is now being implemented and serves an example of how integration can remove barriers between healthcare services and improve care pathways for older adults with physical and mental health needs. Do you see this model of merging healthcare services together being more common in the future? I do. I think the big thing that was important about that one was that it was across sectors within health, that it was that mental health and senior services there. They really saw the ability to serve people better by coming together. And I think the fundamental concept of the Ontario health team um, policy that is moving forward right now is that same concept of if we bring organizations across sectors together and have them working together, we can break down those barriers, we can serve people better, we can make this a seamless journey and improve not only the patient experience, but also the patient outcomes 
Um, and, and there is a way to do this better. Um, that particular merger happened before the Ontario Health team policy was in place. Um, and I think actually set that or set them up well to be, be a big player um, in that space. And, and I think there will be more and more organizations looking, whether it's a merger or whether it's just a really strong partnership and really, really close um, integration that may not get all the way to, you know, the boards and the finances, but really close integration of the actual services. Um, I think this, we're going to see more of that in the system um, under the banner of the Ontario health teams who are really now the structure that people can rally around and people can come together um, under this new local planning structure. Yeah, no, that was an, an engaging thing to dive into there. And I think, uh, yeah, it's good to see just kind of a more hands-on example of all the things we've been talking about so far. So as we get towards the end of the interview, one more thing that I wanted to bring up was that you are the uh, board director at Regent Park Community Health Center. Uh, how did you get involved with a board and what got you interested in that sort of role uh, overall? Yeah. Great question. This is something I had been thinking about for a while. Um, over the years of doing uh, at Santis, I've worked more and more closely with community boards um, and particularly on strategic planning, but also on other projects and um, have seen the role that those boards play and, and the importance of the board to an organization in setting overall direction um, and, and in supporting the executive team um, to, really, to really make the organization function. Um, when I started thinking about the kind of organization that appealed to me in terms of where I may want to um, put that sort of volunteer time, um, the equity focus, the social justice focus, um, really community grounded, holistic view of healthcare that is in the community um, health center world and that is inherent in that model um, really appealed to me. And then particularly the Regent Park Community Health Center um, has a very holistic view of health and um, the health of a community and thinking about um, health beyond just individuals um, and tackling things like racism as a key determinant of health and the trauma that comes from racism, the community trauma that comes from racism, um, and really addressing that actively and proactively um, in how you serve a community and how health services are delivered. Um, so that particular organization um, was one that I was really interested in. Um, but I think, I think really I was looking, I, I wanted to volunteer. It was something I had been missing in my life in the last um, few years. And, and I think it's a really important way to give back to the community. And based on um, my particular skill sets and the work I've been doing over the last little while, sitting on a community board felt like the right fit. Yes, we've uh, definitely had other speakers on the show and they've talked about the impact being on a board has had on their careers. Uh, for yourself, what would you say are some core uh, takeaways or skill sets you develop by being on this board? I think it has helped me to understand better what the boards I'm talking to in my work are going through now having been on the other side of the table. Um, one excellent line that I heard about sitting on a board is keep your nose in, but your hands out. You want to know, you can want to poke around, know what's going on, 
but it's not up to you to do it. And that has been a really interesting thing of thinking about execution versus strategy and the operational side of something versus the strategic side of something. And where that line is, it can get very gray and very blurry. Um, But I think being on a board has really helped me see um, the advantages of having both those pieces in place. Yeah, definitely uh, an experience that a lot of uh, of the of the listeners and our peers that we've spoken to that seems like a very interesting thing to get involved with and uh, cool to hear your insights on it and uh, I think that's about it for our interview today I think we uh, got through everything we wanted to discuss and that was a fantastic conversation so thanks so much for joining us today Kelty thank you so much it's uh, great to be here and and really happy to be able to to share a little bit about how I got to where I am today and and some of the lessons I've learned along the way. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 24 of the Healthcare Hub podcast. Thank you, Kelty Gale, for joining us and bringing on some fantastic insights. And uh, we hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Thanks very much. And as a side note, this episode is sponsored by the DIHLC, the Degroot Interprofessional Health Leadership Conference, and also by Ferris Issa. He's a mortgage specialist with Scotiabank. So definitely check out those links in our description. And with that, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you.